Eva College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, January 19, 1972. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, Part 2, The Archaeology of the New Testament. The last day of the course, continuing the study of the great New Testament manuscripts and the text of the New Testament in Greek. Now then, um, I think we we uh, did our duty by Bar Kokhba and the great Jewish rebellion, both the first and the second. Remember what Bar Kokhba's name means? All these big boys have to have a manufactured false name. Stalin, you know, wasn't his real name. It means he had a, had a Russian name, but Stalin means man of steel. And uh, Hitler's real name was Schickelgruber, but he changed that to Hitler for obvious reasons. Huh? I don't, son of a star. Yeah, Bart Kochbach, son of a star. And at first he was only an insurgent leader against the Romans, but uh, later he picked up the claim of being the Messiah, and, of course, they did not believe that Jesus, who had come uh, 60 years or so before, was the Messiah. So uh, Bar Kokhba was a false Messiah, surely one of those whom Jesus warned against. Now then, we'll leave that unless somebody wants to bring something up about it. Okay? Now, this last two pages here, 20 and 21, New Testament manuscripts. And I'll start running through this again. We did a little of this the other day. 197, the most important papyrus manuscript of the Epistles of Paul. Now, this is not absolutely the oldest papyrus manuscript of any part of the Bible. There are fragments of the Gospel of John that are older, but they're only fragments. They have a page or so. And this is a, a collection that includes practically the whole of Paul's epistles. So this is really an important collection of uh, papyrus material and is commonly called a codex. They're bound together in a single cover, a binding, so that makes it a codex or a volume. You see, when we're talking about manuscripts, we distinguish between them rolls and codices. Codex is singular, codices, C-O-D-I-C-E-S, plural. Uh, a roll is like the Dead Sea Scrolls, wound up on a spindle in roll form, like a roll of wallpaper. And a codex is like, is in separate sheets and uh, these great Greek manuscripts chiefly are codices. Some of them were not bound. They were piles of sheets when found, but have been bound since. The British Museum had the Codex Sinaiticus, all except a few leaves they couldn't get from a museum in Germany, bound in two volumes. This is uh, for their better preservation, of course. But a codex is a volume as distinguished from a scroll. Most Old Testament manuscripts in Hebrew are in the form of scrolls. Old Testament manuscripts in Greek are in the codex form. All right, these papyrus leaves are not a scroll, they are a codex. And they're dated about uh, the year 200, which makes them 150 years older than the three great, basically important, until manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Alexandrinus. All three of these from very early times and of basic importance for determining what is the correct and authentic text of the New Testament. Uh, probably the Codex Vaticanus may be slightly the older of the three. This one and the Codex Sinaiticus are dated 
about uh, the year 350. And uh, then the Codex Alexandrinus, a little, a little more recent, somewhere between 350 and maybe 400. But these are very old as manuscripts go. Now, the uh, Papyrus Codex, Chester Beatty, and uh, don't call it Beatty unless uh, Beatty is your name. Uh, it's pronounced Beatty. So they tell me. I think this is wacky, but that's everybody's an expert in how you pronounce your own name. Um, part of these, the 86 leaves, 30 are in the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and the rest of them in Dublin, Ireland. There seven leaves missing at the beginning, some others missing inside, and um, it is figured out that this originally had 104 leaves made of 52 sheets folded in the middle. This would give you 104 leaves, and if written on both sides, it would have been uh, 208 pages, but I think they were written only on one side of the papyrus. Nine by six inches, the original column of writing eight inches high, four and three quarters inches wide. Now, the importance of this, of course, is not at all in the number of pages or the number of columns or the number of leaves or how high the column was, but how does it relate to our present-day Bible? How does the Chester Beatty, Beatty, the Paris Codex of the Epistles of Paul, compare with what we have in our modern Bibles? Now, this answer here is a quote from Finnegan's book, like from the ancient past. It is substantially identical in its text. This oldest manuscript, that is, it is the oldest one of any size at all, uh, outside of mere uh, scraps of papyrus, this oldest manuscript, quote, emphatically confirms the accuracy and soundness of the general textual tradition. In other words, the fact that later manuscripts down through the centuries agree so closely with this indicates that the later ones also are highly reliable and authentic if they had not been copied with extreme care, they could not show this uh, almost letter-for-letter letter identity, you see, with this oldest known manuscript, which goes back to within a uh, uh, little over 100 years of the time when some of the, well, 150 years of the time when Paul wrote these epistles. Yeah, Mr. Nair. No, Paul's epistles were written, but the copies don't survive. See, and what we have are copies of copies of copies. Now, Paul wrote these. He sent them around to Rome and Philippi and these different churches. And they would use these and use them and read them and reread them, and finally they wear out. And before they would wear out completely, somebody would say, say, better watch out. This thing's going to isn't good for much longer. So they would make a copy of it. And that, in turn, after 30, 40 years, would wear out. See? So the oldest surviving ones we have are from a later time. Now you have to distinguish between the age of the manuscript and the age of the book that's in it. See, the oldest manuscript we have of Isaiah is from 100 B.C., the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript, but Isaiah lived 700 B.C. So what Isaiah wrote must have been written and copied and recopied, who knows how many X number of times, until we come down to one that survives today. You see. Yeah, that's cool, sure. There could be older ones that will be still discovered. But until they are discovered, they are no part of scholarship. This is purely a possibility or a hypothesis, you see. What scholarship has to do with what has been discovered, not with what we hope will be discovered. If we could recover the autographs actually written by Paul or Moses or Isaiah, this would be very interesting. Put a whole bunch of professors out of a job and 
give a job to some others. <laughs> and it would settle some great controversies, of course. However, you should realize, Mr. Neri, the differences between these manuscripts are very slight. Put them all together and put them in a hat. They don't make a hat full. They're just a series of little things. And these books are substantially identical. However, copying, we certainly do not believe, and nobody believes, that the, the transcribers, the scribes who made the copies between the time of the original authors and when they stopped making copies by hand, were infallibly inspired. These men were trained scholars. They were well-equipped for their job, but certainly not infallibly guided in this. If they had been, the manuscripts we have today would all be identical. But they aren't. There are no two exactly alike. Now, um, when did copying by hand come to an end? What invention put this clear in the shade for all time? Printing. When the invention of printing came in, making it possible to mass-produce copies from one block or form of printer's type, the need for hand copying stopped, and printed copies are much more reliable. I have a Greek New Testament that I've read through a few times and printed by the <coughs> Cambridge University Press in England. They sent the World Science Bibles, and I found uh, three or four typographical mistakes in the whole New Testament after repeated reading of it. Sent them in and got a very nice letter back. Uh, thankful to get this. They will see that it's corrected in the next printing. Um, you see, errors in a printed book in successive reprints and proofreadings are progressively weeded out. And uh, then no new ones are introduced as long as they're printing it from that same set of type or re-photographing it, you see, from those same uh, pages by a photolithoprint process. This reproduces all the mistakes in your original, but it doesn't introduce any new ones. And um, so the invention of printing put a stop to hand copying and also to the new introduction of copyist errors. And the ones that are in the printed copies are ones that have come down from manuscript copies, and those can be, not absolutely, but mostly progressively weeded out by a careful comparison according to fixed rules that have been worked out. This is called textual criticism. One of these rules, just for example, if there are two bad readings that differ from each other, it is more likely that the difficult one is true rather than the easy one. It is more likely that a scribe change the text to remove a difficulty than that one would change the text to introduce a difficulty. You see how this would work? So if you have a, a word or a number or something that seems to be a difficulty and another manuscript has one that isn't, other things being equal, now of course there may be other kinds of evidence involved in this too, but just balancing those two things, it is more likely that the more difficult reading is correct and the easier the reading is wrong because you have a way of explaining how the easy reading got in but there's no possible explanation. Nobody takes a perfectly clear thing and, and uh, intentionally introduces a difficulty. And uh, we're not talking about intentional mistakes, but those, those produced by somebody who is um, claiming to do an honest job. Another form is where a um, scribe is recopying an old manuscript, and here's a comment that somebody has written in on the margin. This is not part of the book. It's a comment, like you might have something written on the margin of your Bible that you wrote in. But here, this guy that did it is long dead, and somebody 50 or 80 years later is copying it. And here he says, this, what's that doing on the margin anyhow? That looks to me like it belongs in the text. So he copies it and puts it in the text where it doesn't belong. And maybe this is recopied then uh, 200 times through several hundred years. 
And as long as people are copying that particular manuscript, this, this error, or this um, addition that got put in, this comment to the margin, this is called a gloss, gets reproduced as if it were part of the true and genuine original text until somebody comes along and says, now wait a minute here, there's three or four very old authentic manuscripts that are maybe older than the one that this one can be traced back to that don't have this in. So they figure it out. Huh. This is not uh, as old as the book that, that this is a copy of. The oldest and most authentic manuscripts don't have it. Therefore, somebody, with good intentions, no doubt, but took a liberty here of copying a comment into the text as if it were part of the text itself. Now, that's one kind of mistake. Another kind is where a word or a line is omitted, and comparable to that, where a word or a line is duplicated. And I'll tell you how this happens. A monk in the Middle Ages copying a Greek manuscript, and he's working and working. It's a very dull job. Uh, very wearying to the brain and the eye, but he's skilled at it, and he's working, copying from over here, he's copying from, and copying it into a new one over here. And it gets up to a certain point, bang, the dinner bell rings. So he goes to the dining hall of the monastery and eats his dinner or lunch with the other monks and comes back and starts again where he left off, or where he thought he left off, and accidentally copies a line that he had already copied, so you have a double line, or a word or a phrase, or he makes the opposite mistake of skipping a line. This is a fairly crude type of error, and it's fairly common in the late medieval manuscripts, but also very easy to weed out. This isn't hard, because right on the face of it, the thing is nonsense, you see, where the, or almost nonsense, where the line is duplicated, or where something essential to the sentence is left out. So that's, that's another sign. Now, the, the um, classification of all these different types of copyist errors and the study of how they occurred and how you deal with them and how by a scholarly uh, comparison of ancient evidence you gradually weed them out and thereby establish what the genuine text is. It's called textual criticism. This is not, a, this is not using the word criticism in the sense that some people think of fault-finding. One man told me it was presumptuous for sinful humans to criticize the Holy Word of God. Now, if criticism means fault-finding, of course that's true. But criticism means passing a judgment. And where two manuscripts differ, somebody's got to make a judgment. Which one is correct? Unless you're going to say they're both correct. Mr. Piatti, how old are you? Twenty. Twenty. Well, now, look, supposing uh, I'd see your birth certificate and it would show you were twenty, and I'd see another one and say you were twenty-two. But I say, I'm a fundamentalist. I have a strong faith. I believe that on January 19, 1972, Mr. Beatty is both 20 and 22. This is impossible, you see. This is, um, this is uh, fascinating your intellect to do this. One of them must be right, and at least one of them must be wrong. Now, maybe they're both wrong. Maybe you're only 19. I doubt this, but uh, uh, theoretically, they could both be wrong, but they couldn't both be right. See? Therefore, where two manuscripts differ, somebody has to make a judgment. And you don't do this by starting with the King James Version and then going back to the Greek manuscripts and say, uh, which one agrees most with the King James Version? We'll take that. Well, there are people like that. A lady in church says, the King James Version was good enough for Paul and Silas and good enough for me. <laughs> that, that is the opposite of scholarship. Now, textual criticism in the hands of believing scholars who believe in the Bible is not a weapon, it's a tool. And furthermore, it's absolutely necessary. 
And we Christians who believe in the Bible shouldn't leave this to all the liberals and unbelievers who don't believe in the Bible to do all this. We should do it ourselves, and believing scholars should do it. I'll tell you a very good example of this, the New American Standard Version of the Bible, which probably you may own or want to get. This, this is a product of textual criticism at many points where there are differences in the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts in the hands of believing scholars who have a positive slant on Christianity, not a negative slant. See, and this has to be done, and this is done so accurately, this has been worked out to such a refinement that we have not quite absolutely, but um, almost, for all practical purposes, we have the New Testament as it was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, and so forth. And the differences are technical and trivial, except for a couple of places, the end of the Gospel of John, uh, of Mark, rather, and one place in the 8th chapter of John, and even these, the evidence is overwhelming that they are not part of those books at that point of view. They may be genuine records of something Jesus said, but uh, they are not found in the oldest and most authentic manuscripts of those two books, uh, Mark and John, at those points. Some of them in a different place in the book. All right, now then, um, I answer your question, Mr. Mary. Are you an expert on this town? Okay. Now, um, uh, we'll go on down here. Codex Vaticanus. I have known students. Yeah, Mr. James. What about those, and I've heard about a few weeks ago, received Well, the received text is, uh, that's what they believe, all right. The received text, or the Byzantine text, is based on uh, manuscripts that were known all through the Middle Ages. You realize, of course, the differences are slight. This is almost academic, but it is not based on the three great, uh, for instance, Codex Sinaiticus was discovered later. This papyrus manuscript was discovered later. Now, I have seen this argument. There's a book written on this um, called The King James Version Defended, which is really a defense of the received text or Textus Receptus that the received text must be correct because God has providentially preserved it through all these centuries. In answer to that, God has also providentially preserved the Codex Sinaiticus, and it has been discovered, see? So it's an appeal to the providence of God working through history proves nothing. It cuts both ways. God has also preserved the Chester Beati papyrus of the Epistles of Paul in his divine providence. Therefore, uh, this amounts to saying the received text is the correct text because it is the because it is the correct text. It is because it is. This is not really convincing. Now I give credit for sincerity. These people who say this are very sincere, and um, to them it is a very important issue, and so forth. All the same, this is not convincing. And those who who hold that the received text is a relatively inferior text, not grossly, but in comparison, are not blasphemous, neither are they irreligious, neither are they lacking in faith, neither are they working for the devil or anything of the kind. But they're looking at this thing with a more thorough scholarship that takes account of more factors than the people who plug for the received text only. Now look, the King James Version, which I use all the time, every day, uh, it's dated in its English, of course. But the King James Version is a very faithful translation of the received text of the New Testament, made by men who believed in the Bible. 
who believed in it as the infallible word of God, and, and this was their, they were committed to this in the Old Testament too. But it is a translation of a faulty text. We have a better and more authenticated and a better, uh, let's say, uh, edited and corrected text of the New Testament. You can buy one for five bucks from the American Bible Society that is better than anything the King James translators had. And this isn't surprising. They did their work in 1611, and this is 1972, so this is 350 and more years later. And um, it's not surprising that many things would make progress in biblical scholarship in that length of time. And um, these folks have, um, I've tried to reason with some of them, they have a closed mind on this. You, you do not get the first base. The received text is it. And uh, really, this is um, comparable to these people who talk about the King James Version was good enough for Paul and Silas. And mostly, they are so sure that the received text or text or set this is correct that they have never studied, never read a book like uh, like this book by uh, Metzger here, and are even unaware of the argument on the other side of the question. Now, Metzger is a Christian. He's not a, an atheist or a destroyer of the Word of God or anything like that. I wish he'd teach in a better school in Princeton Seminary, but uh, he's a Christian believer. And uh, so am I, in spite of my obvious sins and faults. And uh, the uh, King James Version is a very good version for daily Bible reading and in greatly in its favor the fact that it was made by men that believe in the Bible. This is not completely true of the RSV, certainly not true of the New English Bible, and Moffat's and Goodspeed's horrors, no. But, uh, no, we're not there yet. And not, but uh, the New American Standard Version is made by people that believe in the Bible, the Berkeley Version is. And if you want to know my choice of a modern version of the Bible that is uh, thoroughly loyal to the Bible as the Word of God, I would say uh, until this new American Standard came out, the Berkeley version was my choice. And today I'll say it's a toss-up between these two. Take your choice. And of the New Testament alone, Williams, published by Moody Press. And don't get him mixed up with the Williams in England. They're both Charles Williams. Williams in England is on the wrong side of the fence. But uh, Charles Williams in America, he's a Baptist. That's a, of the New Testament only, however, a very, very good version of the Bible of the New Testament in modern English. All right, now, does that answer yours? Anybody else got one? What's printed in the syllabus here, you students of your intelligence can get anyhow, I can take up the class or not. All right, Codex Vaticanus, in spite of its Latin name, I've known students in, in well, when I was in Princeton Seminary that goofed on this, thought this was a Latin manuscript because it has a Latin name. Now, it's called Vaticanus because when it first came to the attention of scholars, it was in the Vatican Library in Rome, and that's where it still is. Who pinched it out of there for a while? Missionaries, you know? Oh, he's got his name down here. Who pinched the Codex Vaticanus? <laughs> this is Johnson. Napoleon Bonaparte. Was he a cubby? <laughs> I don't think Napoleon was a Christian of any stripe. Uh, I'll leave that to the Lord to decide, but to... You know, uh, he uh, conquered Rome, including the Vatican area, and uh, helped himself to what he thought he'd like to have, and took it back to France. Among other things, this manuscript. Now, I think it would have done Napoleon good if he'd have sat down on St. Helena or some other place and studied it some, but uh, that wasn't his idea. And it was in Paris then uh, for uh, some years, and then later it was... Um, 
for some international deal or other, restored to Rome. Originally 820 leaves, 759 exist today, of which 142 are of the New Testament. The leaf size, um, 10 and a half by 10 inches, just about square, you see, three columns to the page, 42 lines to the column. And this is, uh, has practically no punctuation. You realize also that these early manuscripts, most of them, had no spaces between the words. Parchment was expensive. And you saved a little bit. You chiseled a little bit here by just running all the words together. And uh, you're supposed to be able to read this uh, anyhow. Practically no punctuation, a little bit. And uh, it's written very beautifully in capital letters. This is about 150 years more recent than the Chester Beatty Papyrus Codex. And, of course, it's of the whole Bible, Old Testament and New, not just of the Epistle of Paul. And it's not known where written, but may have been Alexandria. Now, Codex Sinaiticus. That magazine does not show the Codex Sinaiticus. It's a picture of a leaf of it, or a page of it in the Metzger's book there. This was found in the monastery of St. Catherine at um, Sinai, 18, let's see, when did he first find it? Um, 1844. He was visiting there and knew nothing about this manuscript, but interested in some of the other things in this monastery. And the monks there, they don't receive ladies as guests, but uh, any fellows like to go there, they'll and entertain you royally on the house as long as you like to stay. It behaves to monotony of this a very out-of-the-way place. So if you'd like to have a vacation and little cost beyond getting there, why, the Monastery of St. Catherine is the place. He was there, and one day in an ash can noticed a number of leaves of parchment thrown away and promptly rescued them and salvaged them. And after getting them into his private bedroom and looking at them, he realized these were really something important. So he rescued these pages. And then he asked the monks if they had any more. And they had some more, all right, but they immediately clammed up and wouldn't talk. Now, the interesting thing is they hadn't valued them at all. They'd kept some of them away for scrap paper, evidently unaware of their importance and value. Uh, These Greek Orthodox monks go in for religious art of the type, as you can see in that magazine, these icons or uh, sacred pictures with things with halos around them and so forth. And probably if these man- manuscript sheets had had some of that on, they'd have really saved them. But just writing, you know, and they'd thrown it away. So when he asked them if they had more, um, no, um, they wouldn't, wouldn't talk or he wouldn't admit to having any, and he couldn't find out anything further. Until one day, when he was about ready to leave, one of the monks said, would you come to my private cell for a little while? I'd like to have a word with you. So Tischendorf, who spoke Greek and other languages fluently, went there and just kind of shut the door carefully, you know, and locked it, I guess, and brought out a, a hoard of these things that he had saved up. And uh, Tischendorf was tremendously intrigued. This was a earth-shaking discovery for New Testament studies. And he uh, was finally allowed to take uh, part of the leaves back to Europe with him, not all of them. And he took them to Europe, and um, I think they were photographed, these certain ones at this time, so there would be a photostatic copy of them, and they showed them around, and the Tsar of Russia at that time um, financed um, Tischendorf's expedition, 
and put up the money, and he went back to dicker with the monks in the monastery of St. Catherine to get the rest of this manuscript. And at first they uh, were very suspicious and wouldn't talk or wouldn't sell, but finally they came around, and um, he, he had a suitcase full of medals and honors and orders of the garter of this and that from the Tsar of Russia, which he handed out lavishly to all the more important monks in the monastery. They only got about 12 or 15 there today. They used to have more, maybe 30 or 40 in Tischendorf today. He passed out the honors, you know, and uh, quite a sum of gold and jewels and one thing and another, and finally succeeded in getting possession of the whole thing. They claim today that he only lent it to them. And they have framed in a, in a frame at the monastery a letter which is in Greek in which he promised to bring it back, which they claim is genuine. Tischendorf claims they sold it. Anyhow, it was put in the National Museum of Tsarist Russia in St. Petersburg, now Leningrad, which is the, was at that time the capital of Russia. And there it remained. And uh, it soon uh, uh, photocopies were made of the whole thing so that scholars could have access to it without necessarily seeing the actual manuscript. And there it was at the time of the Russian Revolution in 1917 when the Soviets and the Communists got control of Russia. Now would you expect the followers of Marx and Lenin to be highly thrilled by the Codex Sinaiticus? Well, this is just one more assessment of the opium of the people, you know, all this religious nonsense. However, they have a, you know, it's a strange thing. The, the country that is dedicated to the abolition of money and capital, they have a, a sixth sense for smelling out where money can be obtained. It's amazing. And they realized, though, they, they didn't believe in this stuff at all, that it might have a cash value. And after the Russian Revolution in the early 1920s, I believe, or 1933, after a long run-up dickering and negotiation, it was finally sold to the British Museum for 100,000 pounds sterling. At that time, 500,000 American dollars, or half a million dollars, the most expensive single book the British Museum ever bought. What the Russians did with this money, I'm sure I don't know. Maybe they used it to embalm Lenin and fix the red lights in his tomb. But at any rate, the manuscript, except for a few leaves from Tischendorf's first return home, I believe, which are in um, in Germany, the rest of it is in the uh, British Museum. And during World War II, when London was being heavily bombed and there was danger of destruction, the principal and most important and unreplaceable treasures of the British Museum were put in vaults deep underground. And this uh, Codex Sinaiticus was put down very deep underground for preservation during the war years. It's out again now under a heavy glass cover, I believe, like the Constitution of the United States in Washington. You can look at it, but uh, they won't let you check it out as a book or anything like that to even touch it. But it's in, it's in London today. Now, describing this book, originally 730 leaves, today 390, of which 242 of the Old Testament, 148 of the New. Size of the pages a little bigger than the Codex Vaticanus, 15 by 13, or maybe 14 inches wide. All in capital letters, similar to the Codex Vaticanus, probably written about 350, place unknown, probably or possibly Egypt. 
Now, that's the second of three. These are all in capital letters only. They're written by hand in a, a, a style of writing that is artistry in itself. Nobody ever wrote students' names on sheepskin diplomas by hand more <coughs> beautifully than the Greek capital letters are on these three great New Testament codices, Ale- uh, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. Now, uh, I believe it is... Uh, it is Finnegan who says, while this has some punctuation, it has no spaces between the words and some ornamentation. For instance, uh, all the first letter on a, a, of a new book of the Bible, let's say the book of Exodus, they would have a fancy decorated letter with uh, uh, some frills on it and so forth. This later in the Middle Ages became a highly developed art, especially the manuscripts, the Latin manuscripts produced in Ireland. Some of them are amazing works of art with gold and purple and beautiful <coughs> colors. This has a little ornamentation. And uh, he says it has the air of simplicity, which marks the oldest until manuscripts. This has the, uh, you can almost say you can see truth in its face. It has the air of simplicity and of uh, a lack of uh, any evidence of tampering or trying to change things very much. It's uh, considered, therefore, of extreme importance. Now, uh, Alexandrinus is also one that has the air of simplicity. This has uh, 820 leaves and so on. You can read this yourself and what it says. Now, Finnegan. What does Finnegan have to say about the dependability of the New Testament text? I'll read this and then call for questions or comments. Last paragraph of the syllabus. We have today 170 papyrus manuscripts. Realize what MSS stands for. MS is manuscript and MSS is manuscript. Plural. And fragments. Over 200 uncial manuscripts and fragments. Over 2,400 minuscule. That's written in small letters, like the small letters of our alphabet. And many of these are cursive, written in a running hand. They're much harder to read, but uh, not just... Uh, <clears throat> I have some students that I find write a test and uh, they can write capitals or small letters, but they can't write longhand. They print. Evidently, some schools start writing this way for a while. They still do many. But uh, some of these minuscule manuscripts are small letters but individually written and others have the greek long hands with the letters run together like when you'd write a letter you wouldn't if you weren't printing you're just writing a running hand now then no other ancient greek book has anything like so much evidence for it homer plato aristotle socrates there isn't a one of them that has a shadow of the amount of evidence that the New Testament has as to the Greek manuscripts that establish the genuine text. While there are numerous variations in the New Testament manuscripts, still these are comparatively minor in nature. It is estimated that the substantial variations amount to less than one one-thousandth. That is, one-tenth of one percent of the text of the Greek New Testament. And you realize many of those can be weeded out by scholarly textual criticism with virtual certainty. The close relationship between the oldest surviving manuscripts and the original writing is amazing. For many classical authors, we have only manuscripts from hundreds of years or even a thousand or more years after the original time of writing. Yet the papyri of the New Testament come from 150 to 200 years after the books of the New Testament were originally written by the inspired authors themselves. Text of the New Testament is thus established with certainty, exceeding any other ancient book. Finnegan, page 352. That's that. Now, anybody got any questions or comments on this? 
This is a subject, if any of you fellows are going to Pearl Diggers to a theological seminary, that you will study somewhat as part of the regular seminary course. Let me add, however, that in liberal and quasi-liberal institutions, the decline of faith in the infallibility of the Bible as the Word of God has been understandably accompanied by a decline in stressing the importance of the original languages of Scripture and of textual criticism. If the Bible is really the word of man and only contains the word of God, and if you can't say that you believe in verbal inspiration, that the actual words in the genuine text are what God meant them to be, what's the use of getting uptight about it? Why take all the trouble to learn Greek and Hebrew if we haven't got exactly what God meant us to have anyhow? And why have to study textual criticism of either the Old Testament or the New? It's a very minor part of Old Testament study. It's uh, the final product. You can't be sure anyhow that it's the Word of God. So the decline of faith in the Bible as the Word of God, to put it in plain English, has been accompanied by the soft uh, peddling of courses in Hebrew and Greek in seminaries and in textual criticism. And what are they put in the place of this? Courses on Freudianism. And... Uh, all sorts of things like this, which may have its place, I don't know, I can't work pretty hard to prove Floyd was a Christian, but uh, maybe, it, uh, maybe it has its place, but you see, if you believe that the Bible is really the word of God with no ifs or buts about it, then the actual language of the Bible becomes important. Now, I, I studied Hebrew under Robert Dick Wilson, he was quite a character, but he started out the course with a lecture on the benefit of studying Hebrew. This was a big gag on the campus. A lot of students weren't going to take that course. They'd already had it to come and listen to this. He says, well, there's um, two main reasons for studying Hebrew. As you fellows think it's no use, but I'll tell you, two reasons. The first is that so that you'll learn once for all that you can't make for yourself a better translation than the ones already made by scholars. That's the first reason. The second is the girls of Bashar are studying Hebrew, and if you don't know any how on earth are you going to preach to them? <laughs> that was Robert Dick Wilson. He also, did I tell you about him one day? His pants came off in class, his suspenders broke, and this was embarrassing. He finally got him hoisted again under control. Said, well, gentlemen, it's a good thing there were no ladies present. Another time he said, no man living knows enough to disprove the truth of a single statement of the Old Testament. This man knew 65 languages and 15 years running to defend the Bible. Every language that any part of Scripture was translated into down to 500 A.D. Another time he said, Blessed is the man that will not trust a profession. And another time, Remember, gentlemen, opinion is not proof. That's Robert Dick Wilson. I studied archaeology at Princeton University under a visiting professor, William Rogers, an Assyriologist, who was a liberal, however, and he had two lectures on the Old Testament, and he pretty well made hamburger of it, or minced meat, following critical theories, and said, all scholars are agreed on this. Moses didn't write the books of Moses, there were two, probably three Isaiahs, and so forth. And one of my friends that had more courage at that time than I went down after class and asked him, Professor, did I hear you say all scholars are agreed that the critical theory of the Old Testament is proved that? Yes, I said that. Don't you consider Robert Dick Wilson a scholar? Who? Robert Dick Wilson, whose classroom was less than one mile from where this man was standing talking. Robert Dick Wilson. Oh, yes, I know who you mean. Listen, I know about him. I'll tell you about him. 
Robert Dick Wilson could be a scholar. He knows enough to be a scholar, but unfortunately the man has identified himself with a position which it is impossible for a scholar to hold. Now this reminds me of the Japanese officer in the Japanese occupation of China who said if he's on our side, he's a soldier, and if he's on the other side, he's a bandit. <laughs>